Amen. If you have a Bible, open with me, please, to the book of 2 Peter. Peter's second epistle. We are in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. This morning, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. And today we will consider the topic, the faithful ambassador of Christ. The faithful ambassador of Christ. This is an interesting passage, and we'll read it in just a moment. Because Peter sets out here and kind of gives a detailed explanation of why he does what he does. Why he has written what he has written so far in this epistle. Why he is so thoroughly exhorting these believers in the call to walk in holiness. This is a spirit-inspired explanation whereby Peter gives kind of an autobiographical sketch of why he's doing what he's doing. He details the the means and what it looks like to be a faithful minister, a faithful ambassador of Christ. And before we go any further, let's understand that we are all ministers of Christ. We're all servants of Christ. We are all those who are made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all his ambassadors in the world. So this applies to every single one who is in Christ. With that, let's read our text, then want to ask the Lord to bless our time as we study His Word together. Please stand with me, if you're able, as we give attention to the reading of Scripture. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, this is holy, inerrant, inspired Scripture, the very Word of God. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. And have been established in them, in the very truth which is present within you. I consider it right, as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and write it upon our hearts. You may be seated. Now let's join together, going before the Lord's throne of grace. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you and we acknowledge that you are great, greatly to be praised. You are exalted, the King of kings and Lord of lords. There are none who are like you. There are none to whom you can be compared. You are the creator and sustainer of all things. All things that exist have been brought into existence by the word of your power. All things that are sustained, that continue to exist, are sustained by your word. They are kept. This world is kept and preserved For that last day, when Christ returns, the earth is burned up, and he brings about the new heaven and new earth. Lord, as we consider your greatness, what is man that you should think of him? What is man that you should consider and be mindful of him? Lord, who are we that you would send your very son die on a cross to take the punishment for our sin. 
Lord, surely there is no merit in our being that could deserve such a price to be paid. The only merit that we have is the merit of sin. We deserve your wrath. We deserve to be condemned for all eternity and sent to hell to suffer your extraordinary wrath as the penalty of our sin. Thanks be to you, O great God, you have made us alive together with Christ. You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. By grace we are saved through faith. It is not of ourselves, but it is your gift given to us freely in Christ. Lord, you give this free gift, and we know that we can never repay the gift, but we know that you call for those of us who are alive in Christ to be transformed, for we are indeed made new through the saving work of your Son and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit taking up residence in our dead hearts. Lord, as we consider all these great things, it is brought to my mind how frail the offerings that we can give to you are, how feeble and how short they fall. That, Lord, we come with our hands held open, asking and allowing you to take our lives and use them for your sake, for your glory. We ask that you would sanctify us by the truth of your word that you would cause us to gladly and willingly put to death the sin that remains in us. Cause us to courageously wage war against the flesh that seeks to cling so closely. Help us, Lord, to lay aside everything, every encumbrance, everything that entangles us as we seek to run toward the great prize of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we embark on this time to study your word, may we be freshly reminded that it is but a miraculous work that only your spirit can accomplish if we desire your word to be written on our hearts and our lives to be transformed by that truth. Lord, I pray that our eyes would see, our ears would hear, and our hearts would receive and apply this glorious truth. Pray, Lord, that you would take our broken vessels and our weak offerings and that by your mighty power and strength that you would take them and make them useful in our lives and our sanctification and ultimately for the spread and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Lord, would you write your word upon our hearts? Would you cause it to bear fruit? And would you help us now in this time where we are so desperate for your Holy Spirit to move? Lord, we need the Spirit's help to receive and apply the truth. And so we ask that you would be pleased to do that, that you would accomplish among your people exactly as you intend, exactly as you plan. 
for we know that you will do these things. You're the great sovereign, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, and to you belongs all glory and honor and praise. Pray all these things in Christ's name, amen. So coming to verses 12 through 15, we we need to kind of reset our context because Peter begins in verse 12 by saying, therefore. He links us back to what he has been writing, the instruction that he has been giving, and so we must look at what he has been telling us we must do. He has been writing about the importance of holy living as it pertains to entrance into the kingdom of God. He has told us that the Lord has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness in the knowledge of him, through the knowledge of him that comes in his word. He has told us that we must walk diligently and in our faith supply moral excellence. And in our excellence, we must supply knowledge. And in that knowledge, we must supply self-control. Self-control must yield perseverance. Perseverance must yield godliness. And godliness must result in love. So Peter is writing all these things, pushing this thrust of, saints, you must be diligent. You must work hard as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And yet in all that, we have these reminders that there's nothing we can do to merit this salvation. We have these reminders that this is given to us. The entrance into the eternal kingdom of God is abundantly supplied to you who are in Christ. That should be a source of great joy in in this message of Peter telling us all that we should do as the outworking of our salvation. Saint, take great hope in realizing that your eternal life is abundantly, overwhelmingly given and supplied through Christ. Go all the way back up to verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. It all wraps up in Christ, knowing him, walking in him, being made alive in him. For you were formerly in darkness. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were walking according to the way of the world. You were under the oppressive hand of Satan, walking in darkness, pursuing the passions of your flesh. But in Christ you're made alive. In Christ, you are a new creation. In Christ, you are taken off the path to death and put on the path to light, to life evermore. You say, what does this have to do with verses 12 through 15? Again, Peter says, therefore. He says, because of these great truths, these truths in verses 2 through 11 undergird what Peter's going to write in verses 12 through 15. Peter is writing with this great urgency. If you're with us in our study through 1 Peter, you remember that we saw he was just so urgent. He saw this importance that the saints be strengthened by the power of the word through the hope of the gospel. And we see that same urgent urgency in Peter today. He desires to show the heart that he has behind all of this instruction because his heart helps us understand why he is so urgent, why this message is so urgent. Ultimately, Peter shows us and tells us that he is submitted to Christ. 
He submitted to Christ and submitted to Christ's plan. And this instruction, this example that he lays forth, friends, is a stirring example of what we should pursue, of what we should seek if we desire to be faithful ambassadors of Christ. We must see here, I think, through Peter's instruction, that the brevity of our lives should drive us to diligent service. You know, if we want to just kind of nutshell these verses, that would be it. The brevity of life should drive diligent service to Christ. That's diligence in proclamation. That's diligence in our reception and application of the truth. That's diligence in our perseverance and our persistence in proclaiming the truth and remaining in the truth. That's diligence in our love. And that's diligence in our humility. All that wraps up again because Peter realizes that his death is imminent. He realizes that his time on this earth is quickly coming to an end. And he says, in light of all that, here is what I do. He sets forth an example for you as a saint and as a follower of Christ. So we're going to look at that example really kind of in in two parts. We see his, his actions on one hand. We see his motives on the other. And so under each of those two main headings, there's a couple points that we can drive into. So we begin by looking at Peter's actions. His actions in verse 12, we see that he is a persistent teacher. He's a persistent teacher. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present in you. We we see the duty that Peter undertakes And we see the description of these saints that Peter says, I'm going to faithfully and persistently lay these truths before you, even though you have already been established in the truth. And so there is much to pull out from that. There's much to understand that these are people who are firmly rooted in the truth. And yet Peter says, these things I tell you are because you're in the truth. I want you to call them to mind. I want you to walk in them. Peter begins by saying, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. I will always be ready to remind you of these things. Think back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. He told the saints, always be ready to make a defense of the hope that is in you. Always be ready to stand firm and declare why you have hope in Christ. Thinking about Peter's life, you can quickly understand this earnestness that he has, this zeal that he has for the idea of readiness. For Peter knows what it's like to have not been ready to face the onslaught of sin and temptation that is going to come. You think back to his denial of Christ. Just before that, he had told Christ, I'm ready to go with you. I'll go with you to prison. I'm ready to go with you even to death. And he denies even knowing this one who is his master. And friends, that was a life lesson for Peter. The Puritans would describe that as an experiential theology. This theology of readiness that just drips off the pages of Peter comes from his sin. It comes from this restoration where Christ takes this broken vessel and sends him back into gospel ministry. It stuck with Peter. He had walked 
in pride. He had walked in sloth. He had walked in unreadiness to face the temptation and the fears that were driven from the evil of the world. And he had tasted the bitterness of sin. And his response to that, after the Lord had broken him and brought him to repentance and restored him, his response was, I'm always going to be ready. I'm always going to be on the alert. I'm going to know that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, knowing that it's not some general other person, but he seeks to devour me. He seeks to attack me, to tear me down, to cause me to fear, to tempt me to walk in sin and fleshliness. Peter was a learner. And I think that's one thing to take away just from this idea that he says, I'm always going to be ready to remind you of these things. He was a learner. He learned from his sin. So the question becomes to us as those who are in Christ, do we learn from our sin? Perhaps you're not in Christ and you're here today. And the question to you would be, have you learned from your sin? Are you walking in the paths of unrighteousness and and dealing with the outworkings of bad decisions in life? Sin has consequences. Learn from that sin. Flee to Christ. Come to Him in faith. Repent of that sin. And that's for those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. The remedy is the same. Come to Savior. Drink of the water of life. Peter says, I'm always ready. I will always be ready to remind you of these things. These things, of course, points back to verses 2 through 11, that great call to holiness, that call to diligence as you pursue the, the putting off of sin and the putting on of Christ. Peter says, this is what I'm ready to do, beloved. I'm ready to call you to follow after Christ. What? better, what greater purpose could anyone, anyone in Christ, what greater purpose could you undertake than to give your life seeking to follow Christ and seeking to pull others with you as you follow Christ? Peter says, I remember all these things from my past. I'm following Christ with my whole heart, and I earnestly desire, oh, you saints who are facing persecution and evil and false teachers and mockers, I earnestly desire that you would walk with me, that you would remember these calls to righteousness. I don't think it was necessarily that Peter had this goal in mind, that he wanted to go from place to place to be able to proclaim Christ, but rather it wasn't that he wanted to go from place to place. It was that wherever Peter was, he was going to proclaim his Savior. Christ was his all. Christ was all he wanted to talk about. It consumed his heart and his mind to make others know the Savior. Is that your heart today? Are you so devoted to the one who has redeemed you that everywhere you go, you speak of Christ? Everywhere you go, you show Christ in the way that you love, the way that you resist sin, the way that you serve, the way that you are faithful and steadfast under trial. Do you love your Savior so much That that's what marks your life. That was the case with this dear apostle. 
He says, I'll always be ready to remind you of these things. And then he shifts and gives this description kind of a, of his audience. And this is where I think it gets really neat and really applicable in our lives when, when he says, I'll remind you of these things, even though you already know them, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present in you. They know these things, and they're established in the truth. These are not baby Christians. That's, that's what Peter is showing us. These are not immature believers. These are likely the same people that received his first letter. They had walked through the fires. They had been through the trials that the Lord allowed to cause to, to sanctify them, to strip away the cares of the world. They were rooted and grounded in the truth. And Peter says, I'm still writing these same things to you because you need to know them. You need to be further grounded and established in them because the winds of the world are going to come and they will be fierce. Tall trees stand, tall buildings stand because they have deep roots. They have deep foundations. Peter says, you're established in the truth. I want to establish you even deeper. I will continue to proclaim to you the gospel and these simple calls to forsake sin and live for Christ because that's what you need. That is how you will stand firm in the day of false teachers. Chapter 2 is all about false teachers. Chapter 3 then is about mockers and scoffers and scorners who will make a mockery of the word of God so that they can continue to pursue fleshly desires. And how does Peter set the people up to stand in those days? He tells them, walk in holiness. Pursue righteousness. It's kind of like Paul in Romans chapter 15, verses 14 and 15. The apostle Paul said, I myself am convinced that you are full of goodness. You are filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. But I've written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again. Friends, let's understand we all need to be reminded. Reminded of the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. Reminded of, of that from which the Lord has rescued us. We all need to be reminded of those sins that can so easily sneak in and, and, and catch us and trap us and ensnare us. We need to be reminded of these things and the call of Christ to flee. The call of Christ to cut off the arm of the flesh. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. You need to be reminded because that is how we stand firm in difficult days. So we can kind of tie these ideas together in applications from both perspectives, and it kind of pushes up, I think, to one simple, central, and overarching, but also very deep exhortation. Peter understands very clearly that these people that he is preaching to, that he is writing to, he understands that they are rooted in the truth. But that doesn't stop him doesn't slow him down. He doesn't say, well, you've heard the gospel, so now let's move on to something else. He doesn't say, oh, well, you have called, heard the call to be diligent in your pursuit of faithful moral excellence, so now I'm going to move on to some other thing. No, he says, I know that you've heard this, 
I know that you're established in this, and I'm going to tell you again. I have a feeling if there was a third Peter, it probably would be these same things. Because first Peter, be holy just as he who called you is holy. Second Peter, diligently apply moral excellence in your faith as you pursue godliness. This was what he wanted the people to know and pursue. We must take on the same mindset, I think, with one another. We must take on the same mindset in our homes and in the life of, of the church that we all need these constant reminders of the truth. If you have children, you likely know that you can tell them the gospel every day of the week and you come to them, especially as they're younger, you come to them the next day, you've given them the gospel every day, you come ask them again and they may or may not have an answer. They need to be constantly reminded of the good news of Christ. Children need to be constantly reminded of the need to honor their father and mother because that is the first commandment with a promise. They need to be reminded to tell the truth, to not steal, to not covet. They need to be reminded of the truth. And guess what? The same is true of the adults, the teenagers, anybody. We need to be reminded of God's truth because it's like the Lord just packs it into your mind. He packs it into your heart. And as the Lord does that, then it overflows. You know the truth, and when calamity strikes, your response is not, oh, woe is me, for I am ruined and undone. Your response is, Jesus is the fount of joy. Jesus is my hope. The world around me can crumble, but Christ is mine forevermore. That comes when you are constantly reminded of the truth. When you're constantly reminded of the truth, when you face temptation, guess what? Those words of the Lord, the Holy Spirit living in you, will call to mind. That importance of resisting temptation, of of being angry and and not, not allowing sin to get a foothold in your life, the Lord reminds you of those things. The Lord makes you a way of escape, and it's not this miraculous path that you've never heard. It's through the truth. It's through the word. Peter says, I'm always going to remind you. As long as I have breath, this reminder will continue. So you think about this from the perspective also of Peter's audience. He says, I know that you're established in the truth, and I'm giving you the truth again. So what was their response? Do you think they were eager and joyful Or perhaps did they have that scornful distaste for the truth and say, oh, here he goes again, Christianity 101, we've heard this, he already admits, and here he is giving us the same stuff. That's not the heart of a saint. That's the heart of a prideful, arrogant, lost soul. And this doesn't mean that we don't need to desire to grow. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 would speak to that. Paul says that I'm still having to give you spiritual milk because you're not growing, you're not maturing, you're not able to take on spiritual meat. We should desire to grow and to mature and to be conformed to Christ and increase in knowledge. But we must understand that these things that Peter is writing of are spiritual meat. That is what we are to feed our souls on. We are to be nourished in 
fed and pressed on by the gospel of Christ, the good news of the sinless Son of God taking your flesh upon his own shoulders at the cross. You need to be reminded that he bore God's wrath in your place. And it's only through Christ that you can be counted righteous and forgiven of your sin. And so what is kind of the overarching exhortation of this instruction? It's the exhortation to humility. To understand that as you are investing the truth in another, it's not up to you to come up with some clever way to get the truth to somebody. It's not up to us to come up with what they might need to hear. Give them the Bible. Give one another the truth. Let's fill our minds with it. Be saturated by it. Walk by the Spirit. The Word is the mind of the Spirit. We also need to be humble to, to hear the truth over and over and over again. So Peter was a persistent teacher, and then he lays forth in verse 13, as we continue looking at his actions, he lays forth this practical example as how he did this and what specifically was he doing. He said, I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. Look at his heart. I consider it right. This is Holy Spirit-inspired words here. So this is not just Peter's opinion that, oh, I consider it a good thing. This is what the Spirit wants us to see. This is what the Lord wants us to know, that this is the right thing to do. If it were not the right thing, obviously it would not be included in Scripture. This is a man under divine inspiration showing us the way to live. Right here is the Greek word dakaios. It speaks to that which is right, that which is proper, that which is lawful. It's the proper fulfillment of duties towards another, whether towards the Lord or towards your fellow man. Peter's not just doing what he wants to. He's not saying, you know, I, I don't really have anything else I can do in life but, but to teach and preach the truth. But rather, Peter is doing this because it's right and because it honors the Lord. You just step back and, and ask yourself, is this my heart that I want to do what honors God? That's such a basic question. It's such a simple question to kind of gloss over. This is a simple statement of Peter just to kind of read right past, I consider this right. But are you really driven? Am I really driven? by this great overarching desire to glorify God? That is our chief end, is it not? To glorify the Lord. We're vessels of honor and vessels of mercy to make much of God, to magnify His glory to the world. Peter says, I do this because it's right. Faithful, fruitful ministry is driven by firm Biblical convictions which lead to steady action. Fruitful ministry is driven by firm biblical convictions, and those convictions lead to steady action. Peter says, I'm doing this because I know it's right. If you act upon things that you are not convinced of, 
if you do not develop biblical convictions, then today you may do one thing, tomorrow the winds of the world change and you desire to do another and you go and do it. That won't result in fruitful ministry. Fruitful ministry is when you are biblically convinced of that which you are doing and you give your life to it. That which does not proceed from faith, Paul would say, is sin. Be convinced of the truth. Develop lasting, real convictions. The Lord has given us all we need pertaining to life and godliness in the knowledge of Him, in the knowledge of His Word. Develop convictions and live by those convictions. I think what we also see in this practical example of Peter is this idea of, of, of faithfulness or maybe stewardship would, would be a better word. He again says, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling. As long as I am on this earth, my mind is set on serving the Lord. That's an eternal mindset. It's temporal action driven by an eternal mindset. As long as I'm here, if that's one year, if that's 100 years, I make it my purpose to serve the Lord. I am going to steward the time the Lord gives me. How are you doing in stewarding your time? How are you doing in serving the Lord in the time that he gives you on earth? In verse 14, Peter makes clear that he knows that the laying aside of his earthly dwelling is imminent. Knowing that, he is urgent in fulfilling the work the Lord has called him to. Are you urgent with the gospel? Are you urgent with the instruction of Scripture to those whom you love? Parents, are you urgent with the truth of Scripture to those that the Lord has entrusted to your care? Are you urgent in your holding one another accountable to walk according to the truth of God's word? We have covenanted together as a church body. Do you see the sense of urgency that we must have because tomorrow is never promised? Your next breath is not promised. Tomorrow certainly is not. Next year certainly is not. So we need to be about the work today. You need to be about that work as immediately as possible. Do you treat the truth of God's word like an eternal treasure? Think about, think about it this way. The, the truth of God's word is this eternal treasure that he has placed in your earthen vessel. And your earth, earthen vessel has a quickly coming expiration. You have all this truth, all this work, all this labor set before you. And the day the Lord calls you home, maybe tomorrow. Maybe today. It may be 50 years from now. You don't know. What you do know is that you have right now. Give yourself to serving the Lord faithfully. We see what this mindset produces in Peter. I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up. To stir you up by way of reminder. Stir up speaks of awakening or arousing from, from sleep. John 6, 18 uses this in an interesting way. It says that the waves of the water were stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. So, so picture this idea, this stirring up as these waves that are 
going to be crashing over a boat because the wind has stirred them up. A strong storm has come and stirred up the wind and stirred up the waves. It's what Peter has in mind here. So, so what is he not doing? Tell you what Peter's not doing. He's not just talking to these people. I've heard that said in evangelical circles before from a pastor behind the pulpit. I I just want to talk to you about these things. No, that's, that's not what we do. That's not what you do with one another in the hallway. We exhort. We stir up. We arouse and awaken the affections and devotions. We press the mind. We press the heart. We call for response. Have you ever given the gospel, and I'll raise my hand and say I'm guilty of this, given the gospel to somebody and, and you just say, you know, I'd really like you to go away and think about these things. Well, that's not wrong. It's not something we can't do. But if you're going to stir somebody up, you call for a response. You look somebody in the eye and you say, you're a sinner. You're condemned to hell if you don't turn to Christ. Would you repent of your sins today? Would you turn from your sins and turn to Christ? That's what it means to stir someone up. It means that you press. You call for a response. We must be humble. We must be humble. But we must never be casual with the truth. Hear that we must never be casual with the truth of God's word. Towards the end of 2 Peter, in, in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Peter writes a, a similar statement. He says, This now, beloved, is the second letter I am writing you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, doing this that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior, spoken by your apostles. The stirring up is not a bringing about of new truth. He says, I'm stirring you up by pointing you back to the words of the prophets. I'm stirring you up by calling you to remember the words of Christ, spoken and taught and proclaimed by the apostles. He's calling to action. Who are you calling to action? Who in your circle uh, of friends and family and church family, who are you calling to action? Who are you stirring up? Who are you pressing on? Who is pressing you on? Are you someone that people are afraid to come and press on because they don't know what type of response they might get? Are you the type of person that people are afraid to encourage and exhort because you might be so quick to turn around and give a rebuttal or so quick to get angry or upset or to close off a relationship because you do not want that level of commitment? Who are you stirring up? Who is stirring you up? So that's the actions. Now let's look at the motives of Peter. Let's look at his heart And really what drives him, really what drives this instruction and this example that he sets forth in verses 14 and 15, we see these motives. And in verse 14, we see that he's got these eyes that are fixed on the Savior. He is looking to the Savior. He says, I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent 
as also our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So, so he's doing all this, remembering what Christ has told him. When you say, what has Christ told him? Let's look at Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, and then we'll look at John chapter 21. And we'll see what Peter is thinking about as he writes this, as he paints this picture of being driven by looking to the Savior. Luke 22, verse um, 31, and we'll read through verse 34. This is Jesus speaking in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and that when you have turned again, you will strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. Jesus said to Peter, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. So, so, so this is part of what Peter is recalling to mind, this instruction of, of Christ. And then John chapter 21, John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. You all may know this story well, the restoration of Peter. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, tend my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, shepherd my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Peter responds to his Lord. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, tend my sheep. But we don't stop there. Jesus continues, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. When Jesus had spoken this, he said to Peter, follow me. Now you know the story of Peter. He, he was so bold. He told Jesus, I will go with you to prison. I will go with you even to death. Peter denies even knowing Christ, not once, not twice, but three times. When Jesus is on trial, getting ready to go to the cross, Peter says, I don't know the man. I want no part with him. I want no part in him. Satan was sifting Peter. He sifted him like wheat. But his faith didn't fail because Jesus prayed for him. Do you understand that, that Jesus prays for you today? He intercedes for you at the right hand of God the Father. That should put strength in your stride as you go from here today. That even when Satan desires to sift you like wheat, and he will do everything he can to do so, and perhaps you might even fall and fail and sin, but Jesus stands at the ready. He is your defender. He is your great high priest. So that's all what happens 
And Peter is restored. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, this is what's going to happen. You're going to go out. You're restored to ministry. You're restored in your position as being an apostle. And Peter, you denied knowing me when I was facing the cross. One day you will go to the cross. One day you will be stretched out. Peter, history tells us, was crucified. Crucified perhaps after watching even his wife be crucified and crucified himself upside down. Adding to the immeasurable pain because he said, I'm not worthy to die like my Savior. Undoubtedly, these words of Christ were etched in his mind. Undoubtedly, Peter went from that moment all the way to his death remembering these words of his Savior I think even beyond that, what was etched in Peter's mind was this unwavering, unrelenting resolve to follow his Savior. He was not going to be moved. He was not going to be shaken. It's not because of Peter's great strength, of course. It's because of the Spirit living in him. Peter had experienced the lowest lows he had experienced the bitterness of sin perhaps you have in some way shape or form denied christ because really when we're in christ any sin is to deny him is to deny him of what he deserves your full devotion and your full obedience peter had walked under that weight matthew 27 towards the end of the chapter verse 75 it says When Peter heard that rooster crow the third time when he realized that he had fulfilled those denials, the text tells us that he went out and wept bitterly. Does your sin cause you to bitterly weep? Do you have this bitter taste, this bitter understanding of what sin is? Do you understand the holiness of God? The price of your redemption, the very blood of Christ. If you do, then sin is bitter. Really, the root of all true God-honoring obedience has to find some level, some, some root level of understanding in the bitterness of sin. If sin not be bitter to you, then the Savior certainly will not be sweet. I think that's a quote, but I don't know who said it. So why do we dwell on this? Because Peter says, I know that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent because Jesus Christ has made that clear to me. This didn't cause him to fear. Peter says, my diligent obsession with you walking in the truth is because I know I'm going to the Lord soon. I know my life will be over and until he calls me home, I will give all I have to ensure that the saints are walking in the truth. Peter's tasted the bitterness of sin. He wants no more of that despicable taste, and he doesn't want his followers to feel the weight of sin in the way that he has. Do you have that hatred for sin? Do you have that love for your brothers and sisters that you don't want them to be crushed under the weight of pursuing sin, chasing after sin, following after it, and then walking into it, falling in its trap, and then having the Lord crush them 
under the weight of sin. Do you love others enough that you'll be like Peter and do all you can to stop that? Live your life in an exemplary way so that they may follow after Christ. They may see your example and follow the Savior. Paul would say in Philippians chapter 1, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. We certainly ought to have that mindset, but he continued on. If I'm to live on in the flesh, that will mean one thing. That will mean fruitful labor for me. That's Peter's mindset, isn't it? I'm going to be with the Lord soon, but as long as I remain, I will pursue fruitful labor for the sake of Christ. Do you seek to be fruitful for the sake of your Savior? Coming to verse 15, we see kind of the the final motivating desire of Peter and that's that he wants to leave a lasting legacy. And I want to explain that in a moment so we understand really what I'm getting at there. But he wants to leave a lasting legacy. It says in verse 15, I will be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Peter's desire to leave a lasting legacy has nothing to do with himself. Do you see that in the text? He, he has the heart of a Christ-like, Christ-honoring shepherd in that he says, after my departure, I don't want you to remember me. I want you to remember these things. I want you to remember and recall and to walk and to remain in the truth. He wants them to remember Christ, but he remembers and he knows that he has a role to play in that. He says, I will be diligent. I will be earnest and zealous. I am eager to ensure that you will remember these things long after my departure. What a legacy. Obviously, his two letters here are are spirit-inspired, and they are contained in Scripture, and that's why they remain. But this is the legacy that he desired, that here long 2,000 years after his departure, These things are still encouraging and exhorting and pressing on the saints. If you desire to make a difference for the kingdom of God, this must be what drives you, that you point people to Scripture. This was not about Peter. Yeah, He supplied the blood and the sweat and the tears. He gave his own earthly life for this very sake and cause. But to him, it's about people being built upon the word and about the word being built into the people. Is that your desire? That you yourself would be built on the word? That the word would be built into you, that you would live it out in the fullest way possible? Is that your desires for others, that they would be built on the word and that Christ's glorious truth would be built into their hearts and overflowing in their lives? That was Peter's desire. The way that we pursue this, and I think this might be obvious, I hope it's obvious, the way that we pursue this in whatever ministry the Lord has called us to, individually and as a church, the way that we pursue this is that every ministry is full of and overflowing with the truth. You partake in in a mercy ministry, whatever that mercy ministry may be. Bring the truth to bear. 
If you are to go and, and you know, we talked about the sanctity of life earlier, if you are to go and, and to volunteer at a crisis pregnancy center, don't just go and provide physical help. Go and preach Christ. Go and, and show those helpless, hopeless people their need for the Savior and then show them the glorious Savior. Bring the truth to bear on their situation. Our homes ought to be Bible-saturated. Conversations, the, the order of, of our schooling, everything in our home should be saturated with and by the truth of God. When you're invested in a fellow saint in, in this type of discipleship relationship, that must take place outside of these four walls. But that relationship is built on truth. It's not that, oh, hey, we both like cars, we both like to hunt, we both like to knit, whatever. It's that you both serve the same master, and you both desire to see his name glorified. And the truth of God is the center of that relationship. We read 2 Timothy chapter 2 earlier, verse 2. These things which you have heard from me, entrust these to faithful men who are able to teach others. Who are you entrusting the truth to that they may be able then to teach others? Ladies, Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, but teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind and being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God is not dishonored. If you want to leave a lasting legacy, and that is a good and God-honoring desire if it's what we see here, those two passages, 2 Timothy 2 and Titus chapter 2, should mark our relationships. Walk in the strength that the Lord supplies, and you minister according to the truth that He has revealed. Lasting, enduring ministry submits to God's word and seeks God's glory. Submits to God's word and seeks God's glory. So we end where we began. The brevity of life, the knowing that the laying aside of our earthly dwelling is imminent, 50 years is imminent in the light of eternity, knowing the brevity of life, we should be pressed to diligently serve, and seek and honor Christ in all things. We seek these things because we're filled with devotion to Christ and we know that they are the outworking of genuine life in Him. We persist in these things because entrance into the kingdom of heaven is not handed out to those who just pray a prayer or walk an aisle or join a church. The kingdom of heaven is abundantly supplied to those who walk in these truths. So we faithfully stand upon these things. We faithfully stand upon the call to personal holiness because in this way, entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is abundantly supplied. So may we be diligent to persist in these things and to pursue Christ together. We persist together and we pursue together.
And we do this, friends, all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we come.